It's back on this episode. BMW goes back to the future. Nissan copy and paste. Scammers hit mileage. EVs have a rap sheet. Mazda takes on Porsche. F1 is scared of some Americans. And you can thank a bathhouse attendant for Tokyo Drift. Let's start the show. This thing is a freaking monster. <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and we are back from a hiatus that felt like forever. Like, that was the longest break, holiday break. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. Now we're starting 2023 off strong. We've got a lot to get through, so let's go under the hood and cover our headlines. What if you could rock Dakar Yellow to Cars and Coffee and a full livery? to your track day like at an instant just decide much like tuning a car i i don't want to wear this color today i am going to go with the car yellow to my cars and coffee and show off a little bit of my flavor well bmw has hit with its next generation of the e-ink technology last year they came out with sort of the gray version of this and i remember commenting on it saying that you know, this technology is going to take forever to progress. And yeah, it sounds really expensive to replace panels that change colors. So they're going to have to figure that part out. But now for this year, they've released a full color version. Um, it can display up to 32 colors. They mix and match according to however they feel. Of course, this is still a concept. They haven't really said if this is going to get a date for release or when they're actually going to release it. Some of the things and questions that I have uh, are, are what I mentioned before. You know, how expensive is this going to be? Um, if you have to replace a panel, for example, right? It's if it's as as cheap as putting vinyl wrap on a car, which is not the case. Um, it would be ideal, but for a mainstream car to have this, at least right now, it just doesn't seem like a viable option. But this is probably like the least shocking of the concept things that they unveiled at CES with the iVision D. And and D is actually D-E-E. And what it stands for is Digital Emotional Experience. Um, I think BMW like quite literally wants you to fall in love with your car. Uh, it's no longer the ultimate driving machine. It's the ultimate loving machine. And a lot of the things that they've described, they've added a mixed reality slider that can alternate five steps from just driver-related information all the way to complete virtual reality within the car. In between that is augmented reality, right? So there's functions like seeing obstacles on the road, and that's cool. But in the video that they're showing the augmented reality or virtual reality, virtual reality piece, they actually have the driver like driving through a bunch of like jellyfish, uh, which seems way distracting. And I think they would could have done a better job of demonstrating the technology without showing something so dangerous. But this is really just a concept, and they unveiled it at a electronic computer technology conference, and not so much a car conference. So 
that sort of alludes to how they actually uh, decided they wanted to display this. Um, in the video, they show that they can detect cyclists, uh, which, you know, is sort of a minimum, I would say, for technology at this point. But the virtual mode includes vibration, sound, and get this, fragrance. They, they, they really, BMW wants you to smell your car. Um, they're really attacking all the senses here, which is, you know, kind of alluding to the emotional experience. So they want you to show off your mood through the different colors of the car, but then they also want you to have a different experience within the car, utilizing all your senses to have you fall in love with it, or at least feel some type of emotion. Um, that can be weird to some people. It's definitely weird to me. I'm wondering what fragrances we can load up into that car because that is a wonderful prank waiting to happen. I mean, what other use is there than stink bombs? Uh, that's probably the only use. I mean, I guess this is sort of eliminating the need of air fresheners, but I imagine you're still going to have to load a cartridge or something of some sort. Now, a lot of this stuff, as I've said before, this is concept stuff. Most of this stuff probably won't even happen. But if it does... That would be amazing. Now, the last thing that they unveiled is that the car can actually talk to you and detect you as you're walking to the car. So they've uh, they've applied sensors to the car that actually detects when you're walking up to the car, when you're within a certain amount of feet to the car, and actually detect who you are. And on the window, on the side window, they display an avatar of you, and it says, Welcome, John, in this example, and it greets you. Uh, the automotive experience is changing completely. I mean, it, it went from, you know, the the normal, you need a six-speed to feel like you're connected to your car to now your car becoming a almost sentient being in some of these concepts. It's it's a little ridiculous. It's cool that BMW is pushing the boundary. Um, I wonder how this, how much of this is actually going to, uh, you know, come into fruition. Because really, the only thing they've actually said is going to be real is the head-up display, and the head-up display takes up the entire width of the windshield, which is pretty cool, but again, also seems distracting if you're adding augmented reality or virtual reality elements to your windshield, but this is actually targeted for 2025. I imagine the head-up display they're talking about is really the basic one with driver-related information, miles per hour, maybe your tack, uh, maybe the weather, things like that across the bottom of the windshield. Um, but the way they showed in the video, it actually takes up the whole windshield, which seems dangerous and probably has a million legal obstacles before they can actually get, uh, uh, you know, main, the mainstream to consume that type of product. Um, it's cool. All this stuff is cool. Um, Sony and Honda came out with a Fila, which is sort of competing with this. They have a more realistic take on what that car can do. Um, it does have sort of an augmented reality function also. Uh, I don't like the name, a Fila. Although these names are all weird, iVision D, Afila, I don't know. But it looks like the future of cars is going to become very creative uh, in the future. And if we start including augmented reality and virtual reality in cars, I mean, you could essentially turn your car into like a theater almost, right? You can sort of black out uh, everything inside your car using all the windows, since all the windows are pretty much monitors anyway. I don't know, display a movie on the windshield. 
uh, some, I guess, a nice feature for lookout points. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see where we actually get within the next 10 years. Technology moves very, very fast, a lot faster than, I would say, your normal automotive technology. So I would imagine in 10 years, what I'm talking about right now is going to be, it's going to feel like ancient times. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the next steps are of this. But Nissan also had news, and they just unveiled the 2020 GTR as the 2024 GTR. All right, I'm messing around. That's that's not what they actually did. They did upgrade the 2024 GTR, but let's be real. It looks almost exactly the same. There are some differences, but to the mainstream consumer, you're not really going to see it too much. I mean, if you see a 2020 pass by and then a 2024 pass by maybe 10 minutes after, I don't know that you'll be able to notice the difference, but there are some differences. They redesigned the front and rear end to increase downforce and reduce drag, and even the front mesh um was designed in a way to uh, not impact drag the drag coefficient at all while increasing downforce. So a lot of the design uh, changes that were incorporated for this year are performance-based, which is pretty cool um, that they're investing on that side of things. Uh, there's a new rear wing to enhance the aerodynamic performance even further, and of course the appearance as well. And they've brought back some very iconic paint colors. Millennium Jade and Midnight Purple are back in a nod to the R34, uh, which is pretty cool uh, that we're going to start seeing those, color again, those colors again in the new GTR. Um, I do wish they would have changed things up a little more, but, you know, what can you expect? Um, they had the 400Z they were working on, or just the Z at this point, that they were working on. They couldn't dedicate enough energy to the 2024 GTR. Um, there were rumors about the next version of it becoming electric. I doubt it. If these are the changes that we're seeing, the power plant is still the same 2020 power plant. Um, I mean, it could be that because they're investing in an EV GTR, all their energy is invested in that. Just speculation at this point. Who knows? Uh, but right now, I don't think they're putting too much energy behind the next generation or an EV generation of the GTR. But that what they did return also is the T-Spec, uh, which joins the GTR Premium and the Nismo models. Uh, the T-Spec has the same power plant, so it still has a 565 horsepower, 467 foot-pound of torque, um, or pound-feet of torque, um, as a power plant, the all, same all-wheel drive system. They have a Bilstein da Damptronic uh, suspension that comes with three modes, normal, comfort, and R. And the differences between the T-Spec and the GTR Premium would be Brembo, Brembo brakes that were enlarged, uh, some carbon, ceram carbon ceramic rotors, and gold-painted version of the Nismo's raised wheels. Uh, it also comes with ultra-high-performance run flat tires which i think it's sort of almost it's a wash at this point right it's it's you i don't know that you can have ultra performance ultra high performance run flats or i don't know it, i think it alludes to something that's incorrect i think you either have ultra high performance or you have run flat or maybe it's like a high performing run flat i i doubt it because that's not how tires are described um, I really would have hoped they, you know, wouldn't have included run flats in a performance vehicle. 
Uh, maybe tire technology has advanced beyond my own knowledge, and, and, and that's where we're at. Maybe that's the case. Um, hopefully that's the case. But for some reason, the T-Spec comes with run-flat tires. And they describe those tires as a Nismo-specific compound, which to me only says that they probably designed them uh, with Dunlop because they're actually Dunlop tires. Um, and the technology is proprietary to the collaboration. I don't know. It's it's weird to have a specific compound for Nismo. Um, the differences for the Nismo version of the car, which is set to come out in the summer, is it does get a, a power bump to 600 horsepower. It gets a front-limited slip differential, and like the T-Spec has the Nismo raised wheels, they, they are just not painted in gold. Um, so there isn't a lot of differences between the three versions, um, but it's pretty cool. The GTR Premium does still come with Brembo brakes, six piston in the front, four piston in the rear, and they get lightweight raised wheels. Uh, they're just not the Nismo versions. Cool stuff. Um, I think it's cool that they did advance on, uh, invest in the performance side of things, um, but I don't expect... Or at least I wouldn't have expected this big of, a, of an announcement for something with so little differences. And I know it sounds like I'm hating. I'm not. The car is amazing. Uh, I probably wouldn't buy one even if I liked it. But um, I would have rather introduced this car with a little less fanfare. It's almost like, I, I don't know, uh, BMW uh, uh, announcing the LCI versions of cars. They always do a mid-year refresh. And them unveiling that at some, you know, event. This was Tokyo Auto, Auto Salon that they unveiled this, or Nissan unveiled this at. So, I think it sort of elevated expectations. Uh, at least it did with me. I think it did with most of the community. Most of the memeing that's going around there is that the Nissan looks exactly like it did last year. There are some differences, obviously. But it, it's not dramatic enough to be this excited about. Well... We'll see what else Nissan comes up with. For now, it's cool that they're investing in performance. Now let's get to our next headline. Scammers are using your odometer to steal $4,000 straight out of your pocket. The odometer rollbacks are up 7% nationwide. Uh, Texas takes the biggest jump from year to year with 15%. California, though, is the winner overall with 437,000 cars with rolled back odometers. Now, this is according to data from Carfax. We all know there are some issues there. Uh, you know, we've encountered data entry errors where, you know, you go get a smog check and the tech inputs the mileage wrong. Now that's flagged as an error within Carfax. But Carfax doesn't share exactly how they come up with their numbers, just that in their reporting, they have documented 437,000 rolled back odometers in California. Uh, Texas is second to California, although they did have the biggest increase. California's increase year to year was 2%, so it wasn't that big, stayed fairly similar. I don't know what's going on in Texas, though. The, uh, I guess they're trying to sell more used cars out there and, and you know, using these means. But it's estimated that on average, it costs, it costs a consumer $4,000 for every rolled back uh, car. And you're talking about, about I don't know, on average 100,000 miles uh, rolled back on an odometer. So if a car has 150,000 miles, they're rolling it back uh, 100,000 miles to 50,000. The average is about 4,000 that the seller is gaining by doing this scam. 
Now, uh, the misconception is that now, since we're moving to dig the digital age of the odometer, it's much more difficult to do this scam. But in reality, it's actually much easier. Before, when it was mechanical, you had to you know, remove the, uh, the odometer, roll it back manually. There were different things you could do. Uh, but now you just need to plug it into a computer, essentially. If you have the right PCM, the right smart key, the right tools to plug into your car, in an instant you can have it rolled back. And, and that's the difficult part. There's always going to be people with these resources to be able to do this. So just make sure you're out there protecting yourself. Make sure you're looking at a car. I mean, there's big differences between a car that's had 50,000 miles on it and 150,000 miles on it. I mean, just from driving it, you will hear the differences, the creaks, the rattles, the broken things. Uh, check, a, Take a look at the engine bay. Are, is the rubber in there all worn out, right? Does it show 50,000 miles aware or 150,000 miles aware? Now, if the scammers are smart, they might cut it back 25, 30, maybe 40,000 miles and not do a six-figure jump, and then it's harder to tell. But I think it's important to make sure that you are watching for paperwork and that you're actually inspecting those cars end-to-end -end because there are, in California, 437,000 opportunities to scam someone with these cars, apparently. So watch out for that. On the next headline, EVs are out here committing felonies. So Tesla has the autopilot function, and in this case, it led the police on a 15-minute chase. And this was in Germany. So police patrol were uh, managing traffic and, and observing traffic, and they saw in Tesla uh, where they couldn't even see the driver. It turns out that the driver was fully reclined in his car, and the car was driving on the highway at 70 miles per hour. The cops would reach up to the car and tr uh, go in front of the car, actually try to slow it down, and they would slow it down. The car would slow down. They would speed up. The car would speed up. It became clear to them that the autopilot was on, and they kept honking at the car, trying to get him to pull over. Um, and, of course, the driver wasn't waking up, and the car w doesn't know how to pull over for cars yet. We haven't figured that part out, or at least Tesla hasn't. And 15 minutes later, the driver wakes up, and starts following the instructions of the police. Um, I mean, that's what a way to wake up, right? I mean, you're you're on autopilot thinking you're going to arrive at work probably. I don't know where this person was going. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, oh, what what what, what is this? Why are there police lights on? Why, what's going on? And you were on autopilot the whole time. I would have freaked out. I mean, I freak out if I'm just driving normally and the cops pulling me over. I couldn't imagine waking up to that. And the cops are claiming there were drug 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 typical abnormalities during the checkup, uh, which I don't know. I mean, there's really no proof of that or confirmation. It just sounds like something they said. I think the guy might have just been sleeping and lazy. They did find a steering wheel weight on the footwell. So they, this is how they used to defeat the safety system within the vehicle. Technically, you're, you wouldn't be able to do this without some sort of defeat device. Um, and that's what this guy was using. He put this weight on um, the steering wheel to make it feel like um, there are hands on the steering wheel. And that's how it tricks the car into uh, allowing you to take a nap, apparently. Um, I don't know how anyone could do this. This hasn't been the first time that someone's been caught sleeping in their Tesla. Um, there's countless videos of this on the Internet. 
but I would freak out. I know that, I you know I don't, I haven't grown up in that age yet. I haven't really experienced it yet, um, and I I d- generally distrust technology. But to kind of put your hands put your life in the hands of Elon Musk like that, mm, I don't know that I would recommend it. Now this guy's license has been suspended, and he has been charged with criminal negligence. Uh, so the story is developing, but man, like, I, I don't know. I don't know that th- all this is worth it for a 15 minute nap. I mean, I wonder how long his whole commute is. It would have been a 30 minute nap. Let's call it an hour, right? Is it worth it? Is it, is it worth the risk? And this is probably not the first time he's done this, right? It's kind of like people who abuse the carpool lane, right? They'll do this a bunch of times before they actually get caught once, uh, it's likely that he's done this before. I mean, I would imagine there's probably some testing phase, right? You put the weight on, and then you kind of let the car take you to work, and you don't really sleep. That's like the first few times just to make sure that, you know, everything is is on the up and up. And then maybe on the, I don't know, fifth or sixth time, you decide to doze off a little bit. Or maybe you're on your laptop, right? You're on your laptop. You're doing some work or whatever. That's like maybe times six, seven, and eight. Then on the ninth time, you're like, man, I've, I've made it safely nine times. Maybe I should take a nap right now. I am speculating that that's how he built up to it. I, I don't want to assume that he was... I mean, it could be that he that the cops are right and he was drugged out and this is just a, a whole, I don't know, an acid trip for him. And that's why he was asleep. Or maybe, I don't know. I don't know. He was passed out due to something. But I don't even know how you get here. But anyway, let's get into our next headline. Mazda has taken the lead from Porsche in the future of internal combustion. Now, Mazda hasn't done this alone, but Mazda completed a 1,000-mile drive in the UK that included stops at tracks um, on sustainable 100% fossil-free fuel. And this was a completely stock 182-horsepower Miata, um, and it put sort of benchmark lap times at all these tracks with the sustainable fuel. And the sustainable fuel is called Sustain. It's actually developed by a company called Coritin. Um, and the Miata literally just filled up as stock, no modification, right? And there was no modification to the car, to the ECU. It's almost like a one-for-one uh, substitute for normal gasoline. Uh, and, the, and the Miata stopped at Anglesey Circuit in Wales, Alton Park in England, Knock Hill in Scotland, in Scotland, and Kirkistown in Northern Ireland. This was all over a span of one week. And the 1,000-mile drive, if you don't include the track driving, actually did 45.6 miles per gallon, which is pretty impressive, right, for a sustainable fuel it's unlikely that a gallon of the sustainable fuel at this point costs, let's call it, an average of $5, $4 a gallon right now. Um, I mean, with specialty fuels, I'm imagine, imagining we're in like the $20 range, maybe even more than that. I mean, there's probably a specific reason that Mazda did not post any cost to the fuels in the press release. Um is probably very expensive, but it's pretty cool because, you know, Porsche has developed a plant in Chile that they're developing their own fuels and working on that also. Uh, But this is actually the first time I've heard at least of completely sustainable fuels being put to the test in a road vehicle and it was taken to the track. So it's been tested in a performance element also. Now they didn't include lap times 
Um, I don't really know why they didn't include lap times, and I couldn't really find any. I mean, other than them potentially being slow, but I don't know why that would matter if you're using, you know, sustainable fuel. I think that's the win. And the way this fuel is actually created is using 100% agricultural waste. So, like, straw, uh, crops that you're not using, right? All that stuff that you can't use for consumption, that you can't send for people to eat. They're recycling it into these fuels. Now, there not a lot was described in terms of what goes into the process of making these fuels, because that could lead to a lot of emissions as well. But the claim is this is 100% zero fossil fuel and sustainable. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not causing any any emissions, at least when they're creating it. But at least in terms of using it in the car, there are no uh, emissions. Now, the Coriton is stating that this is a drop-in fuel, meaning it's a direct replacement for normal gasoline. Um, we'll see what the cost of this stuff is as it starts hitting the market. Uh, but for now, it's pretty cool that we'll be able to keep our internal combustion cars for a lot longer than we anticipated because we're hearing a lot of this, you know, states saying, at least the United States, they're saying that by 2035, uh, new cars, all new cars sold would have to be EVs, which essentially starts the slow, the snowball of the internal combustion demise. I mean, these companies aren't going to be investing in internal combustion anymore. Uh, but if we do have alternative fuels much like this, it could be that internal combustion development does continue. And Mazda is investing in a lot of alternatives to EV uh, which includes still investing in internal combustion and uh, reduced emission uh, technology as well. Now into our last headline, the bald eagle might soar again in F1. Sorry, Haas, but the real American team is Andretti and Cadillac, and there has been a ton of drama around this over the last couple weeks. So Andretti and Cadillac teamed up for an all-American bid uh, for a place on the F1 grid. Now, the bid is still requiring approval from F1 and the FIA. Last year, Michael Andretti actually stated he was interested in entering F1, but the teams were like, nah, we don't really want another team. Uh, you know, a lot of the speculation is that, you know, the prize money or the money, right, needs to be shared across multiple teams if you introduce another team, which makes sense. But there is a fee to enter uh, F1, which you know would get distributed amongst all the teams as well. So it doesn't seem like there should be an issue with money, but you know, whenever you're working with billions of dollars, of course, there's going to be an issue. The FIA president, though, did confirm that they wanted to open up the process to find a new team. Now, the earliest that a new team would be introduced is 2026. It's 2023 right now, January 2023. So over the next three years, we're going to hear drama about who enters, who doesn't enter, who gets to be part of the Billionaire Boys Club, and who doesn't. Um, I think F1 is scared of the Americans. I said it. Uh, everybody's saying it, really, at this point. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's that. I don't know what it is. I mean, honestly, it's money motivated at this point. But it'd be pretty exciting to see Andretti and Cadillac do this. I mean, Cadillac has already been developing racing vehicles pretty meaningfully up to this point. They have the, uh, uh, the IMDH car, the Le Mans car that they have developed. 
Um, Andretti's already working in IndyCar and has stated that they want an American driver uh, if they do get into F1. So this is definitely going to be the all-American team. It isn't going to be the Haas team with the Russians. But uh, they first have to be accepted, and it just doesn't seem like things are jiving at the moment. Uh, there seems to be a lot of noise around who can get in and who cannot get in. Um, there are other teams making bids, but uh, the biggest spotlight is on the Andretti, Andretti team for some reason. Um, they are being the loudest in typical American fashion, which is good because we're generating a lot of momentum for that. I really, really hope to see Andretti and Cadillac within F1 um, mostly because it's cool to see new teams. I mean, why not give them a shot? I, I think it's cool. Why, why, why are we afraid to shake things up? I think we should encourage new teams. Uh, and if they have the money, which Andretti has, you know, stated that he has the money, they have the resources, they have the backing of a big brand in Cadillac, um, who has proven that they can develop race cars. There's really no reason for them not to do this. Um, it's, uh, it's exciting. It's new. It's a nice shakeup. Who knows what'll happen if they actually get accepted, whether they be contenders or not. I mean, it's going to take a few years to figure that out and it won't start until 2026 anyway, but, uh, it's, it's very interesting how all the news is unfolding. I mean, it, I didn't, I wouldn't expect this much conflict for, from someone just wanting to join the grid, the F1 grid, right? I do, uh, or I am excited about the proposition of the an American team. I really hope they're documenting the whole process, right? Maybe like they release a show of everything that happened, how it's happened. I know we have Drive to Survive, but you know that's sort of become a mockumentary at this point. Uh, half of it is made up; the other half is misinterpreted. Uh, so it's it's iffy, right? And they're going to have their own version of these events too, the Drive to Survive team. I would want to know the Andretti Cadillac perspective on this too. And I, I am very curious as to why the other team owners don't really want this team um, you know, in there. I can't, like I said, it, it, most of the time it's money related, but I mean, there's got to be something else because he is coming in with deep pockets, at least Andretti and Cadillac are. Uh, there's no reason not to have them. So I'm going to put my full support behind them entering Formula One. I think it'd be pretty cool. I don't know that I've ever been a Cadillac fan, but I will be now. I think it'll be really cool to see an all-American team in Formula One. And I think, you know, another reason why this might be a bit of a significant shakeup for the teams that are already in Formula One is the following, right? I mean, I think uh, racing in United States is pretty meaningful, although it, it isn't like the other sports, maybe not baseball or the NBA or especially football, at least for now. But we, if we start introducing an all-American team in F1, that's going to be huge, and we're going to have more momentum to have races out here, which is already happening uh, with Las Vegas, Miami, Texas, uh, and we might see more of that. Maybe Watkins Glen comes back. Who knows? Um, but maybe that's the challenge too, right? The logistics of it all is, is starting is going to start to change over the next ten years if you start in introducing teams, at least in uh, in a different continent, right? None of these European teams anymore. Oh, I'm sorry, but uh, it's more than likely that you know this Andretti Cadillac team will have some headquarters in Europe. I mean, they would have to. 
but it'd be pretty cool to see more F1 uh, representation stateside. So those are your headlines for the week and last week and however long this hiatus was. But we do have one more segment to cover, a moment in car history. And I, I said earlier that you can thank a bathhouse attendant in Japan for Tokyo Drift. And it's it's kind of insane, a little disrespectful, but pretty cool that we have a fall guy to thank for one of the greatest scenes in Tokyo Drift. Maybe the only great scene? I don't know. But the scene in Shibuya where Sean, the protagonist, is drifting through a bunch of people, essentially, and the people part ways, kind of like he's Moses, and he drifts through, I believe, with Han, uh, and it actually is a car chase. But uh, there was a problem in filming that scene. Japan doesn't like to give up filming permits, especially in tourist dr- districts like Shibuya. I mean, there's a lot of people there. I think the logistics of doing that, it's just not conducive to giving people permits. And Justin Lin, the director of Tokyo Drift, was a very young director at the time, not really established. He doesn't have a lot of weight to pull. So it was nearly impossible to get permits to film. And Justin Lin even described it when he asked about the most challenging aspects of filming Tokyo Drift. There's challenges in in filmmaking no matter what you do, whether it's even two people in a room, you can have challenges. Um, But even here, you know, uh, going into Tokyo and where they're very respectful of, you know, their citizens and the community, they don't give out film permits. So you're, you know, you're, you're going and, and we have these huge crews and we have no permit. You know, we can get shut down at any time, you know. But that's fun. That's part of going there and, and learning and, and, and dealing with it. So this meant there had to be a plan. And Universal did come up with one. Now, there's debate whether Justin Lin was in the know or whether or not. I mean, he doesn't really talk about it in this clip, but uh, it's hard to assume that he wasn't in on it, although he claims he wasn't. So Lin told Digital Spy that Universal, Universal, who is essentially the media giant behind Tokyo Drift and the uh, Fast series, hired a fall guy to follow him around Tokyo because obviously they didn't have permits and the Japanese authorities um, were going to arrest him if he didn't. So they would be setting up a scene and people would just be walking through the set because they didn't really have anything closed off. And at one point on the set, this guy walks up and he says he is Justin Lin. And Justin Lin is very confused at the moment. He's like, "Ah, what do you mean you're Justin Lin? I'm Justin Lin. He kind of lets it go in sort of the busyness of getting these this filming done. They don't have permits. They have to move quickly. But it does come into play later. Once they reach the filming in Shibuya, um, he wanted to shoot essentially in one of the most crowded places in Japan. And he did it, right? He did it despite the fact not having permit permits, which is a little questionable, but whatever. He did it. The cops took about 20 minutes to shut them down and kick them out. Now, at this point, Justin Lin thought, uh, well, you know, they'll just kick us out. We'll move on to the next thing and we'll be fine. He had gotten all his shots, actually, in that 20-minute span, which is it's nuts to me that he did. Um, but then he realized that he could be arrested for it. The police actually showed up and they asked who the director was because they were going to drop him in the tank. So the other guy that up to this point had been claiming 
is Justin Lin steps up and says, I'm the director. And that's when the real Justin Lin supposedly found out that it was this guy's job to take the fall for him. If this went down, this guy was going to go to a prison for the movie just so we could have Tokyo Drift. Just so Bow Wow could have a green car, a green toaster in the in the movie, um, and Sean could wreck a bunch of cars in a parking lot. Now, um, I'm grateful. I mean, I think it's cool that you know we got a story out of this. But who is this guy, right? What, why, and why did I refer to him as a bathhouse attendant? Well, it turns out in 2014, Justin Lin told Movable Feast that the Fall Guy also played a character in the movie. And there's a scene in the movie where Han sends Sean to go get some money that he's owed from a guy with a paw. Those of you who have watched the movie knows exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't, go watch it. You won't thank me, but go watch it anyway. Now, um, he walks into this bathhouse, and the first guy he is in contact with is the bathhouse attendant. So that actor is actually the person that took the fall for Justin Lin filming in Shibuya. Now, the consequences of that were he had to spend a night in jail, and that was pretty much it. They probably had to pay some sort of fees as well, which Universal took care of, of course, or at least I hope. But the mystery does continue because there is no reference in the movie credits, IMDb, and any sort of movie sites on who the bathhouse attendant is. And this might be on purpose, maybe because he went to prison, he didn't want his name out there, he didn't want people figuring this out. I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe. But although we know who the guy what the guy looks like, we don't really have a lot more details around who he is and we really haven't been able to give him his 15 minutes of fame, I believe. I think he deserves a lot of credit for Tokyo Drift. I mean, it wouldn't have happened without him. Or maybe it would have happened. Or maybe some version of it would have happened. Or we wouldn't have had the Shibuya scene, right? The most iconic scene of drifting through uh, Japan. But it is pretty cool. And also, I would still say disrespectful. That Universal hired this guy and didn't tell Justin Lin. I, I find that really, really hard to believe. Now, if I was the director, would I want to admit that I knew? Uh, I don't. I probably not. I wouldn't have any motivation to admit that I knew, and Universal being okay with taking the, you know, the the bulk of the blame on that, you know, I don't blame them. But I I don't know. It's hard to imagine he was clueless about the whole thing until the cops decided to arrest a director. Because I mean, I would know that the consequences of filming without a permit is getting arrested. I mean, you would have to know, especially in Japan. I'm not going to Japan and filming a movie not knowing what the consequences are. I mean, I wouldn't even go like to LA and I live in California and film without a permit wherever I know I would be required a permit. I don't want any any interactions with the police. None. No, I'm good. I'm doing it the right way. So I'm going to know what's up. But in this case, I don't know. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe Universal told him that, that we did have permits. Maybe that's the case. I mean, he never said anything like that. At least I haven't found any information that uh, he was led to believe that did have permits. I mean, the the audio he gives, I mean, it is after the fact. But he did claim, you know, that it was hard to get permits. So he knew in some way. I don't know when, but he did know in some way or some form or some fashion. So that is your moment in car history. So thank you to the bathhouse attendant for giving us Tokyo Drift. 
which is probably one of the most controversial fast movies. I think they're all controversial. I don't think it's just that one. They're all controversial. But I like it, right? At least there are no cars in space like Fast 9, 10, or 11, or whichever one that they're on now. But anyway, that is our episode. You can find us at 91octane.com. Also, follow us on Instagram at 91octane. If you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. Make sure you like, subscribe, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, Really, anything in terms of your support helps. Thank you. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to 91octane. And uh, I'm just going to say we're here to stay. Good night.